So Sam Harris, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, all of them have spent many hours on their podcasts exploring this topic. If it's good for 80% of the people three times in their life and 10% of the people can do it more often, then what are the other things? Because I've had amazing results on it. I don't know if you ever find yourself doing this, but I will at times daydream or I guess imagine what things are normal in the world around us today that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we might imagine to be ridiculous or unacceptable or socially weird. You know, if we go back in time, especially if we watch old films or watch a series that's a period piece, often you'll see those, you know, kind of smoking indoors or whatever it is that was completely acceptable at the time that now, you know, we wouldn't dream of doing. And certainly one of the things that was a social taboo when I was younger was the, you know, if I think about it at school level, even just in casual conversation, was the use of psychedelic drugs. Um, and, you know, there are many reasons for that, uh, not least of which the, the much politicized and publicized war on drugs. But there's been a sort of an uprising or a revival in the conversation about the possible benefits, medicinal benefits, scientific benefits of psychedelics for people who suffer from a range of afflictions that we've used many other methods to treat over the past decades. One of the leaders or leading thinkers in this field in South Africa is a very dear friend of mine, Renan Ayres. And today on the show, we talk about his work in this field. We talk about the practice of psychedelic healing. We talk about the future of therapy. We talk about what psychedelic medicine is and isn't. I am very new to this topic. So admittedly, uh, a lot of the conversation was foundational. And I hope that if you are new to the topic, it will be instructive for you too. But what we do do throughout the conversation is identify a few really helpful resources that if this is a topic you do want to explore in more detail, you can do so before you jump headfirst into what could be quite a, a life-altering uh, or life-challenging experience. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, Renan is a uh, an entrepreneur, a marketer, a communicator. I call him the Johannesburg mystic. A really fascinating human being with a big heart. Uh, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this show as much as I did recording it. So this very afternoon, there is a SciTech virtual summit, a global conversation around psychedelic medicine and innovation that you are a integral part of. Renan, what the hell is psychedelic medicine and innovation and what's happening at the SciTech summit? Hello, Mark. It's good to be with you today. Hello, brother. It's been a while. It's and been too uh, long. Since we last spoke, a lot has happened in the world and we're not just talking about COVID. There's been some exponential strides in how we look at healing ourselves. Mm. And while this kind of stuff has been happening on a ritual basis for since the beginning of time, I think they, they found in caves in Cape Town the oldest fossil of a magic mushroom, a psilocybin mushroom. So this is not a new thing, but it's coming back. And so this is something that was kind of outlawed and it was part of a political war against drugs in the 70s. They've certainly, psychedelics have made a comeback in the last, say, 10 years in terms of research in the efficacy in healing. And, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground there already. First of all, not surprised that that fossil would be found in Cape Town. Second of all, so we're talking about a very broad category 
of substances, right, that have traditionally been lumped under one sort of stigmatized banner. When you talk about psychedelics as a category of things, what's included in there and what's not included in there? What are we, what are we talking about? So psychedelics is a broad category. And really, it, if you look at some are natural occurring compounds, so something like cannabis, mm-hmm. psilocybin mushrooms, um, ayahuasca, all of those kind of things that are naturally occurring compounds. You can even look at things that come from cacti like mescaline, so mm-hmm. San Pedro, peyote, all of those kind of plant medicines that have for millennia have been used for healing purposes in ritual ceremonies. And so over time, and I'd say in the late, on the mid to late 20th century, the many researchers were looking into the efficacy for therapeutic use. Mm. So LSD came out, yeah. and Albert Hoffman was the, the big innovator there. And you saw for a number of years, many, many research papers, many different studies coming out, and many positive, positive results around um, the use of psychedelic substances, which became known as Schedule 1 drugs, mm-hmm. which now became when, and you ask yourself the question, what are the things that you don't want to tell your kids that you've tried? Yes. And it's probably, that is the list that of things. That category of things, yeah. Yes. Okay. So what changed then? I mean, I think we could probably do an entire show just talking about the, the political complexities of the war on drugs and how that came to be and what the unintended consequences of that have been. But I don't know if we want to spend too much time on that. What I want to talk about is what has shifted in the global conversation around psychedelic medicine and who are the leading proponents of that conversation? So it's amazing. Is I, I would never have thought or dreamed that today I'm going to be talking at a global conference mm. on psychedelics. I mean, who would have thought? Mm. And so if you think about me, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm in South Africa, although I have global connections, who would have thought that I would have landed up speaking at a conference and what necessarily do I have to offer in this conversation? Mm. And so what you've seen in the last couple of years is the stigma has dropped. Yes. And the big stigma, and, and specifically we, we live in quite a conservative country. When you speak to people like around psychedelics, there are those that easily say, yeah, I get what you mean. Mm-hmm. Or those that go back to their teens and their childhood it's and what they were doing. brain response. Yeah. yeah say no to see, drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can kind of speak to those that kind of fit into your parents' category mm. and those that, that fit around there where they say, those are drugs, you can't go there. And so with the stigma loosening up and with top institutions, so when Harvard creates a psychedelics unit, when all the top universities, both so Imperial College in the UK and John Hopkins in the US, when all of them are creating specific units to to research psychedelics and healing, you know that something serious is going on. And now the interesting thing is there's a beautiful marriage between what's happening at an institutional level, say like at universities and with private companies Mm. and with nonprofits. Mm. So you have, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of of a nonprofit organization called MAPS. Mm -mm. MAPS is run by the most extraordinary person, Rick Doblin. He's actually come to South Africa before and has given a few talks and he's spent over the last probably over 30 years studying how MDMA can be used, so what you would remember as ecstasy, mm-hmm. how MDMA can use to, 
to heal trauma, not alleviate, but to heal post-traumatic stress syndrome. So not just as a therapy, as a cure. Cure. Okay. So that, in conjunction with therapy, can cure PTSD. Now think about how much of the world currently have either experienced or experiencing a level of PTSD, anxiety, or stress. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, he's an interesting story. He took a lot of LSD when, when he was at university and, his, uh, and he decided he wanted to study it. Yeah. Went to his parents. His parents had, had different ideas. They thought they'd humor him and say, go and study it. But they knew that he'll probably fail within a year mm. and, and then they'll put him into banking and then he'll become the proud son that they thought he'd be. Into real medicine. Yes. <laughs> In inverted commas. That will yeah. fix him. Yeah. 34 years later, he's on the frontier of everything that's happening. And why I bring up nonprofits, universities, and private companies is because in this new economy, the altered state, Mm. is everyone needs to work together. So MAPS has just raised $30 million. They got their last bit. Tim Ferriss has been a huge driver behind Mm. this. And they've struggled for years and years to raise $30 million. Mm. But if you look at some of the private companies and some of the universities, they're raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And so they know that they all need each other, but a nonprofit has been very, very mm. difficult to raise money to do the research in order for everyone else to prosper. Yeah, but if you consider the, the money and influence that's contained in Big Pharma and that this is essentially an unexplored frontier, surely there must be a lot of commercial interest which is possibly also a downside. But I wanted to ask quickly, because I'm admittedly ignorant on the topic, and part of the conversation today is me wanting to be educated. Is there a semantic element around, so if I think about you know, growing up, you, know, you would get speeches at school about these are the things that you should be aware of, and this is what they might look like, and you know, you'd have the policeman that would stand up in the front of the classroom with a baggie full of stuff that, you know, don't go near this oregano and, and whatever. And But at the same time, half of my class was on Ritalin, you know, and there was this inordinate trust that was placed in this new miracle drug that could help cure this affliction that everybody was suffering from, which was, you know, attention deficit disorder. Is something like Ritalin, is that just a psychedelic tool that's been formalized in medicine? Or are we talking about something completely different when we talk about medicines that are already being used to treat mental disorders or health disorders of other kinds, how do I differentiate how these things? And, yeah, yeah. How, do, how, do, how can I put them in separate boxes, or shouldn't I? Yeah. So I'm no psychiatrist, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll give it a shot. First, I, I I really enjoy the irony of life at the moment. So, you know, while it's completely acceptable to to take Ritalin every day, mm. and and potentially I should have also. Mm-hmm. I feel like I, I lost out on that. It's completely acceptable to have a two-liter bottle of Coke on the table. Sure. It's sure. completely acceptable to go have a couple of beers after work or maybe… Box of smokes. Box yeah. of smokes and a bottle of wine at night. Mm-hmm. But you can't touch some of these ancient, ancient compounds mm. that have been with us since the beginning of time that kind of as a rite of passage have been used at certain times to heal us. Mm. I think it's very good that we got those talks at school because mm. the research suggests that you shouldn't try these kind of things before 25 because sure. your brain is still maturing and these are things that, that you should stay away from. Yeah, I was in the States last year and I was on a really cool course, which we can talk about later, mm. and they, they spoke about like classifying these compounds. So Western medicine 
they take compounds and they create metan out of this. Yeah. What we're talking about here is existing compounds that are found in nature mm-hmm. that in conjunction with therapy or in conjunction with a therapist can break the hardest conditions that are out there at the moment. So we're talking about addictions, treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. um, eating disorders, PTSD, anxiety, all the things that are really holding us back as a society and stuff that a lot of us are battling with to some extent, these kind of compounds and these medicines, these substances, whatever you want to call them, these Schedule One drugs are now coming back, but they're coming back this time to heal. And where they were outlawed last, let's say, last season they were outlawed, um, particularly because of the perceived kind of power they were getting. And there was a need to quell it because there was the Vietnam War and this was part of the resistance. Mm. This time they're coming around to really help us deal with our shadow side and the stuff that we're really, really battling with as humanity. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, that's an interesting summary. So, I mean, as, to use an analogy, perhaps, they're both foods, but we're talking about whole foods versus processed foods kind of thing, <laughs> right? Like they both do the same job, but maybe with different implications and, and side effects. Is, is that what we're saying? Yeah. And I think what is really interesting to me is like if, say, the psilocybin or the magic mushroom had a voice and you could have a conversation with it, do you, do you think a mushroom ever knew it was illegal? No. Valid point, yeah. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. And so all that's happening now is things are becoming decriminalized and legalized in in certain areas around the world. And Mm -hmm. certainly they're progressive kind of nodes or spores around the world. Mm. But it's the way it's coming back is going to be a medical first Yes. Approach. Yes. So it's going to be highly regulated. It's going to come via the medical Traditional world. channels. Yeah, yeah, which will be interesting. I'm not convinced it's the way. Sure. And once Big Pharma gets a good whiff of it and, and smells opportunity, they'll be jumping in and they'll either try kill it or they'll try to jump on it and, and make money. And certainly, like you're seeing at the moment, there's huge valuations for, for companies that, like I call them the new pharma, because what you need is is for research and for medical use, you need consistency. Mm, mm. And so when growing in the wild, you're not it, it's hard to guarantee consistency. Yes. And so there's there's lab produced psilocybin. Okay. And so recently this year, there was actually a few months ago, there was a Compass Pathways mm-hmm. is a company that's making psilocybin in the lab and they listed. So their IPO was huge this year. So their valuation is in the billions. And so Big Farm is watching. Yeah. And so it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. Sure. I imagine the next five to 10 years are going to be fascinating. Yeah. The, the, the movie that they'll make in 10 years' time, the Aaron Sorkin movie, will be incredible. <laughs> Let's take a step back because I want to hear about how you got here. Is that okay? Can we do that yeah. quickly? Um, I mean, you run a marketing agency. Your background is in communication and creativity and Give us the, the, the sort of 5,000-foot level overview of how this journey started for you. Awesome. So as long as we come back, if you could make a mental note, let's come back to the future of therapy. 
Please, yeah, let's paint yeah, the let's picture. Park that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So for the last 20 years, I've founded and been running the agency Student Village. Mm-hmm. And it's all about connecting companies to youth, yeah. youth to companies with opportunities. Kind of in parallel, I've, I've always been working with a different tribe. So while youth have been my primary tribe, my other tribe has been entrepreneurs. Yes, yes. So when I went to university, I kind of maybe that was the first sign. I did a triple major. Mm. One of the majors was accounting and business and, and the other was psychology. And I think that was that was a tussle in, in my mind. Mm. And maybe part of it, maybe I did psychology to understand why I was doing accounts. <laughs> and did I did accounts to see if you could make a career out of psychology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I certainly, while I was in the marketing game, and that came naturally being a, a communicator, there was a dormant side of me which was the healer. Mm. And, okay. And so my other tribe is entrepreneurs, and I kind of always lent to – to kind of transformational experiences. Mm. And so whenever we're in conversation, over the last few years, the, the kind of conversation you have with an entrepreneur would be around tech and it would be around exponential growth and how do you get 10x, 100x returns and IPOs and all of that. And over time, as, or as time went on, none of that interested me. Mm. And I leaned towards always, how do, I, how do I go inwards? How do I learn about becoming an exponential leader? How do you go inwards and do a hundred x healing as opposed to your normal just carry on with life? And so I was fascinated about transformation experiences for me as a person, me as a leader, and and then it led to me actually putting on experiences. Mm. We started, you know, we've been part of the same organization, EO, mm. and mm. and we were part of the same group, and it started. I wouldn't say it started, but it certainly intensified when I was putting on retreats yes. for, for our group and then I was putting on for other groups and kind of I, I found this natural thing that I love doing transformational experiences. I love seeing what's possible in others and I love setting up to to get people into their own personal flow and into group flow, which and what is flow? Flow is when, when you feel your best and when you, you perform at your best. And some of us are lucky Even enough. subconsciously. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sorry. So I got, I, what I'm hearing, and I mean, we've spoken about this before, but I think this is a really important point for listeners because there's, there is this narrative and it keeps coming up in the conversations I have uh, with people that are both interested in having a meaningful impact on the world. And when I say meaningful, you want to, you do want to think about scale. You do want to think about reach, your ability to impact as many lives as possible. You want to do that in a sustainable way. And we think about sustainability a lot in terms of the environment, in terms of job creation, in terms of kind of community. But we don't think about like internal sustainability, right? The health of myself physically and then mentally and then as an ecosystem. Is that is that what you're talking about? Is yeah. starting there so that I can have a better, more sustainable impact on the world around. Because it's all fair and well that you are growing a business that's you know 10xing left, right, and center, and doing incredible margins or whatever. But if you die of a heart attack at 44, that you know there's that's not the complete picture. Or, or what are your business practices like? What are you like as a person? What are you like as as a person in business? Yeah. What kind of culture are you leading? So. Mm. What I've seen, and, and the beauty around psychedelics is, is those that have psychedelic experiences are usually opened up and kind of get this, and it's a weird thing, if you think of, of software, it's almost like this upgrade, and they naturally start becoming, it's almost like it opens up their heart, and they get, 
they're operating just less out of their head and there's more of a coherence between head and heart. And they generally become more empathic leaders, more sensitive, more open to playing a more positive role in the world. It just, it is a natural occurring thing. And But what are the mechanics behind that? I mean, what is actually happening in those people's internal makeup, the way they think that is producing those outcomes? So for most people, they're having their first mystical experience. And I, I want to go back to your previous question. It's actually probably a debate for another time. Are spiritual and mystical experiences the same? Mm-hmm. And, and can you quantify them in science? And so I'm going to give you two points of view here. Mm. And, and the first is, and I love on your show that you can quote something from a, from a mystic from the Bible. <laughs> but, of course. <laughs> but if you go back to ancient times and there was a prophet and a poet, Hillel, mm. and he's got this famous quote, if I'm not for myself, then who am I? Mm-hmm. And if not now, when? And that seems like the most selfish thing to say. Mm. If I'm not for myself, I mean, that, that almost sounds like the birth of the selfie. It's interesting because the latter half of that quote is quoted a lot, right? Yeah. If not now, when? If not me, then who? Yeah. Or, or, or I might be misquoting yeah. it, but the, the earlier part of it is, is seldom, <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is often misquoted or yeah. just left out entirely. And the, and the former part speaks about heal yourself first. Mm. So if you heal yourself, generally your outlook on the world changes. Mm-hmm. And from an energetic point of view, think of yourself like you're plugging back into this global grid. You can call it the matrix. You can call it whatever you want. But if you're upgrading yourself, you're upgrading the grid. So without having any effect, without starting an organization and trying to improve the world, just by improving yourself, you're adding to the grid and you're lifting the total grid. There's a beautiful book called Power Versus Force. Mm. And so... I think it's Richard Hawkins. I think it's... Um, it's a we'll make a note and add it to the, the show notes. Yeah, cool. this is for all your kind of peeps that they're kind of need... My kind of peeps. Yeah, they need evidence, <laughs> they need proof, they need empirical <laughs> stuff. And he is a kinesiologist and a mathematician, and he measured the effect of a, of a positive thought. Mm-hmm. And he said that just having a positive thought uplifts 90,000 people in the world. So from an energetic perspective. Mm-hmm. So think about the power of our thoughts and the power of our actions. So if you come to that, if I'm not for myself, then who am I? So it's speaking to not from a selfish point of view. It's like heal yourself first before you go and try to heal the world. Mm. So work on yourself and knowing that just even improving your kind of your outlook and even your thoughts have such a dramatic effect on the rest of the world and lifts up the whole world. So that's that's nice from a high level point of view. It's just I look at it and it, and it depends how far you want to go back. And this is what I love about psychedelics is the sense of if you look at if you look at the time period between when you were born and where you are now, and think of it like you've been on this huge long road trip, mm. and think of the windscreen, mm-hmm. and so you're driving for now. 40 years, mm-hmm. think of your windscreen and you don't have windscreen wipers. Mm. Think of what you collect on the way. Mm. And so after years and years and years, you know, your, your windscreen is like now got mickeys and dirt and all of that. And unless you physically and clean it, you know, you can't see. Mm. Like a physical detox. Yeah. 
And so I kind of, in many ways, my experiences in psychedelics does just that cleans your windscreen, pulls away many layers of stuff that you, that you know you've accumulated and stuff you don't know that you've accumulated. Mm. And in many ways, gives you a fresh perspective, gives you a first mystical, for many people, mystical kind of experience that you feel actually I'm part of something bigger, I'm part of something whole. That whole kind of experience around awe, so when people say it's awesome, it's more the awe, and they get a sense of how ins- insignificant we are to the big thing, mm. but how connected we are at the same time. That in itself is probably when people are researched, you know, their first big psychedelic experience is ranked within the top three experiences of their life. The skeptic in me is listening to what you just said, and it sounds a lot like somebody describing their first religious experience. Which is, I mean, you've alluded to that in the sense that there are crossovers between what you're calling a mystical experience or the experience of mysticism and spirituality or a spiritual experience. I'm going to ask two things quickly. So the first thing is, is this the only way to clean the windscreen? Or, you know, I hear people talking about the power of meditation and other mindfulness practices, um, even yoga or whatever it might be. There's a number of different emerging mindfulness or ancient that are are getting the recognition perhaps that they've always deserved uh, practices that allow us to do some windscreen cleaning. Is your assertion that psychedelics should be part of everybody's windscreen cleaning activity? And then the the next question is, (laughs) if not, then why? I thought at first, wow, you're getting uncomfortable that you're now changing the subject. But now I'm, I'm happy that we're staying on the same subject. <laughs> I would not do such a thing. We're not talking about religion. So just to end off that point, many people that have been part of research and interviewed after their psychedelic experience, over time, they just seem to believe in something bigger. Okay. It's not necessarily a recruitment tool for religion mm-hmm. or, or anything like that. They just feel connected to something bigger. And that realization that we're all part of the whole. And it's mm-hmm. almost like this journey to inner peace is probably our route to oneness as a people and a species and humanity. Mm-hmm. But is it for everyone? And when I spent time in the States, I, I remember uh, I was at a course and I was at a, a course with the authors of a book called Stealing Fire. I'd also add that to the, to the reading list. To the reading list. Okay. And Mapping Cloud Nine mm-hmm. by by Stephen Kotland. Those are excellent, excellent reading material in terms of the science behind altered states of consciousness. Good starting points. Yeah. Are there? Okay. Great starting points. Cool. And really, what, what really got me onto psychedelics was, was spending time with authors. The one module that we did was on psychedelics. And for me, that's where I was kind of bitten and say, well, there's a calling there for me in terms of, of transformational leadership and mm. an exponential tool Mm. you know, for healing. Mm. But they were very clear that that probably for 10% of the population, you should never go there. Okay. Like never. You're predisposed to psychosis. This could bring out the worst in you. You should not go there. Almost like um, an allergic kind of reaction. Yeah. In a, in a way, I'm, using an, I'm using a medical analogy that's probably not yeah. medically true, but it and doesn't for, matter how much you like watermelon. Yeah. If you're allergic to watermelon, you, you shouldn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for some people, it could be nuclear. That's how bad it could be. And what is that, though? What, what happens to that person? So, if so let's take an example: someone who has 
who has had psychosis before or bouts of schizophrenia, okay. these kind of drugs could bring it on. And then, it, you know, from going into this kind of altered state, you could potentially be stuck in that state. And okay. so um, for 10% of the people, you should not go there. For 80% of the people, potentially you could have this kind of experience between zero and three times in your life. It's certain kind of a, as a rite of passage. Okay. So in your mid-20s, maybe when when you before you get married or maybe when you renew your vows or whenever you, you find – yeah. <laughs> Whenever these big significant <laughs> times in in your journey, yeah, and then they said only ten percent of the population could be able to handle it um, more than three times in their life. And that, okay, that's interesting because that hasn't been my understanding of yeah. Okay, isn't microdosing a response to that? In the sense that people are saying, okay, well, what if I use it more regularly? If I'm in the eighty percent group. Um, what what is microdosing and how does that fit into that? So spectrum? microdosing is coming back to your Ritalin question. And instead of taking Ritalin, what I'm doing is I'm taking a small amount of, say, either LSD, a magic mushroom, or mescaline, which is from a cactus. Mm-hmm. Small amounts that won't you won't feel the effect, but it's enough to to kind of work with your system that you feel less anxious. Some recalibration more, is happening. Yeah. Okay. More creative, more productive more in touch. And so most of Silicon Valley is on it. You know, if they mm. were on, they couldn't, was it Adderall before? Yes, yes. Then they're now microdosing on LSD or psilocybin. Okay. And so coming back to your question, well, if it's, if it's good for 80% of the people three times in their life and 10% of the people can do it more often, then what are the other things? Because I've had amazing results on it. Mm. But yet, I've had equally, if not better, results on things that aren't psychedelically based. Okay. And so, I've always been a, a reluctant meditator—not reluctant, but I, I've, I really battled to get into the zone very often, and I find that it's it's a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a keen runner, and and I find running down mountains is a meditation for me, and that's the time where where I can get my brain to stop thinking. Mm. And if you can focus so acutely on something that you forget everything else that is almost a holiday in itself and that's been a meditation that's that flow state you were talking about yeah so coming back to that and and recently i knew it was an area of my game that needed work and something that that we all have we all have unless unless we have one lung we all have in equal ability that it's something that the whole world can do costs no money and that's breath work okay and What's breath work? So breath work is really doing meditations or guided breath work is really just breathing, breathing in and out in a deep way, which will get you. So depending on, on the techniques that you do, it takes you into altered states of consciousness and you get to access parts of your mind that weren't available before. So it gets you into a sense of flow. And in many ways, I mean, they, they've done research um, forever on this is that you could have the equivalent of a psychedelic experience by just doing breath work. And so it could be between five and 35 minutes of breath work mm. can get you into a totally altered state. I mean, recently we, Yossi Hassan and I, mm. we hosted a, a five-day breathe to recalibrate and to reboot everyone. At, um, so we, we had about 35 entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and it, it was the most exceptional thing because we did one hour a day 
for five days and to watch the progress of the journey of most people during this time, and you read the comments on the group that we had, you would think that potentially we spiked the tea, um, <laughs> that they weren't just breathing. Yeah. That's, that there were, there were actually magic mushrooms. Some other in additives and preservatives <laughs> in the experience, yeah. Because people were seeing unicorns, people were seeing fairies and eagles and aliens and all sorts of things. That's on the one spectrum. Mm. And the other side, people were experiencing um, a huge drop in anxiety, a mm. huge increase in connection, a huge feeling of, of being able to feel whole, created, connected, and um, being able to kind of clean the windscreen in a much healthier way. Mm. And so in many ways, I'm, I'm always skeptical why people are doing psychedelics. You know, if it's going to replace, well, should we have um, a few beers and cigarettes and let's rather have mushrooms, then we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Mm, okay, I hear what you're saying. So if it becomes a replacement for… The jewel. The jewel, then we're probably going to head down the same rabbit hole and um, there'll be more control and probably banned in time. Or… If it's done in a proper set and setting, so if it's done in the right environment for the right reasons and you're going in with the right kind of headspace, they can be really powerful. But at the same time, you don't have to rely on that because if you're prepared to do the work and breath work, I feel like it's, it's like starting a trail run, running straight up a mountain. And Sounds fun. Yeah. Mm. And so it's horrible. <laughs> It's until you can break through the clouds, until your first 10 minutes, your body and mind are fighting you, they're mm. resisting you, and then suddenly you break through. Mm. And when you break through, it's absolutely beautiful. And the, and the kind of synchronicities and things that come after that are just absolutely astounding. And so… That's that Wim Hof? Yeah, Wim Hof, Wim Hof. the Iceman. Okay, tell me about who's this, because that's what Yossi was talking about. For the listeners that don't know, Yossi is a mutual friend uh, of mine and Renan's, uh, who is also a big advocate. Yossi, Yossi, I've been wanting to get onto the show forever. Big advocate of breathwork as a mindfulness practice as well, and speaks about Wim Hof as being the, the guy. Yeah, so for me, Wim Hof is a guy, an extraordinary guy, and he's a European dude that, that is just so okay in his jocks, in the ice and doing breath work. And, and so he's known as the Iceman because he's totally okay in the cold. He breathes himself into a altered state of consciousness and then he's happy to swim in the freezing waters and is just so at home in the cold. Mm -hmm. but, and he has a specific breathing method. Okay. But he's just one of the guys that has a specific method. Okay. And so... Also, a little note, if you, if you want to meet him, you just uh, go into Netflix and, and watch the Goop Lab and one of the episodes. Um, okay, is about Vim. Okay. Vim, and so you'll meet him. And, and so there are many, he's got a thing called box breathing. So it's basically breathing in for five seconds, holding for five seconds, breathing out for five seconds, and you're going round and round in that method. And so why is the equal in and the out? So breathing in for five seconds, breathing out for five seconds, that, that gets your brain in coherence. And that gets the left and the right speaking properly and, and that kind of, that allows you to go into a deeper state of consciousness and it, it kind of allows the good stuff to go through. And the way I, I like to think about breath work is if you think about this life force that runs through us. And so if you're an anxious person, 
naturally you would find you're a shallow breather. Mm. And so you kind of hold yourself prisoner because if you're breathing in and you're breathing lots of oxygen, you generally feel better. So if you feel like this afternoon you need you need a sleep, generally you haven't probably haven't been breathing or you're putting off things or you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed with what's going on. The, the nearest exit is to go have a sleep mm. or to go drink or to go do all the other things that's, that we find are our exits. And so just five minutes of breath work, you can feel totally different and you can shift your whole headspace into what, in what you are holding. And so for me, it's a really healthy way to clear the windscreen mm. and to clear it often. And it's been used, I would say, again, probably since the beginning of time as part of rituals and ceremonies. And if you think as a runner even, how do you feel, how do you feel after exercise? Oh, sure, yeah. And so literally called runner's high, yeah. Yeah, and so that's the pathway to feeling that is your body moving as well as your breath work, and that gets you into that altered state. So uh, I want to go back to the pin that we put in therapy because I talk a lot about therapy as being a, I'm a huge proponent of therapy as a, as a, a tool for leadership, actually, as a, a way of finding things rather than a way of fixing things. And you mentioned that you think of this new well, not new, but this emerging discipline um, as a as a as a way of reconfiguring or redesigning the therapeutic experience. Tell us a little bit more about that, because both you and I have had lifelong journeys with therapy and in therapy, um, and I think we both you know can only speak positively about a commitment to that type of work. How has this changed your view of of therapy? I certainly think that it's, I'm pro-therapy and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And, mm-hmm. I, and having had seasons of therapy, my work with psychedelics have taught me, I guess one big thing is that my own years in therapy or seasons felt like snorkeling. Mm. And I could only go as far as I could think, as far as I could remember, as far as I could maybe tell a story, mm. as far as I could string my therapist along. Mm kind of just worked on my own narrative. But when I worked with psychedelics, I, I had this, I could access places. It felt like scuba diving or free mm. diving in your mind. And so you get taken to places where I personally couldn't have accessed before. And it kind of, for me, when you can go to those kind of depths, for some people can be absolutely beautiful and a mystical experience. For me, generally, it's horrible. For me, it's like going straight down into the mud and finding mm. things that are really unresolved in me, bringing mm. up and bringing stuff up to the surface that, that need to be resolved. Mm. And so I've kind of uncovered things that I would never have found in therapy. Some felt like, and, and this, is, this is contentious, felt like old, much older than me in this current existence, felt like a, a previous lifetime. Mm. And stuff that felt from this lifetime that, I, that were unknown to me. And so bringing that up and then working in therapy to integrate it and resolve it, for me, was such a healthy balance to bring it in. And so for me, if you look at the future of therapy, so for now, like the kind of conversation that you're having is, who's a good therapist? You look out for recommendations, you Mm. go and you try them, and then you basically... Hopefully there's some chemistry and then, yeah. Yeah. And, And you basically book yourself in for a season. And the season could be a few sessions, could be a few months, or could be a few years. Mm. And then you go through the breakup again. Hmm. But what about now if you could do it on an exponential level? If you could go in and know that you're going to, 
get to the depths of what's holding you back. And let's let's put another footnote about dealing with the things that hold us back. We'll, mm. we'll deal with that afterwards. But if you think about now, what's happening now and what will unfold in the next few years is you will choose a therapist, not just for their therapy skills, but what tools that they'll use in therapy. So you could be looking for someone that uses magic mushrooms, so psilocybin, or uses San Pedro, or uses ayahuasca, or uses any form of psychedelic tool within the therapy context, or MDMA. And what you'll do is you'll go for a session, first there'll be screening, then so they'll screen you to see if, you're, if it's appropriate for you. Mm-hmm. Then you'll have a few sessions of pre-work and getting yourself ready for it. Then you'll have the big session. And usually the big session, so a big dose, the hero's dose, is where the big shifts happen. Mm. So the microdose is where it's very small and it's almost like a maintenance and it's small kind of sparks. This is the big fire. And you'll have that session. And then afterwards, between 20 and 40 sessions of integration therapy. Debriefing. Yeah, yeah. Landing the rocket. Some people can be totally unhinged after that ceremony and some people can feel totally healed. And the main thing is just in terms of landing it properly and stitching you back together is the most healthy way of doing it. So think of yourself now that you may have been in for years of therapy. You can now do it in, in, in a few sessions. And so some of the skeptics will, will say, well, sounds like a quick fix. And everyone's going to be searching for this magic bullet and they could have a mushroom and think that everything's going to be fine. And what psychedelics do in this time is, is what they do is in the big session, it kind of takes you to the summit, shows you what's possible, mm. and you kind of see sometimes the ideal version of you, what your life's purpose or what you have to do in the world. But then you get dropped back at base camp. And it doesn't tell you the time frame and it doesn't tell you the road. It's almost like it, you know, it puts on the headlights. And suddenly mm. your windscreen is clear and you've got the headlights and you can see ahead and then they switch off. And then many people battle because they've seen the end and, and they battle on how to get there. So that journey in therapy can really help you to stay on the right road. So that's... So less of either or and more of both and yeah. from your perspective. And then, and then there's the other side. So if we haven't lost the audience by now in a world that they really don't care about, let's, let's bring in a world that most of us are interested in, and that's the world of technology. Mm-hmm. So now you have the therapist, you have the substance or the agent, and then there's technology. Mm-hmm. So right now you go to therapy, so you, you go to your therapist, or you go to your psychiatrist, and, and you're, you're telling them a subjective view on what's going on for you. So right now there's applications and software out there that will monitor you so through wearables, so we'll monitor your anxiety levels, your heart coherence, your all different markers within your body. And via questionnaires in between your sessions, we'll be monitoring your moods, what you're eating, your sleep quality and everything. By the time you get to your session, your therapist will have a much richer objective picture on what's actually going on for you. And not only will they have a picture of you, they'll have a picture of what people around the world in your similar case are feeling. So they'll be able to see, have the psychedelics had the desired effect? How you're kind of performing relative to mm. everyone else out there. And they'll be able to get richer information plus an objective view on what's really happening for you. So you've got now the therapist, the agent, and technology that are working together to make sure that you're, you're on the right growth journey. The part that I'm really excited about 
is this notion of maybe an entrepreneur in residence. And usually what that sounds like now is, well, actually I'm gonna be part of a business school and I'm gonna be that entrepreneur in residence and people can lean on me for experience. But think about it in the world of retreats. So if you get out of the medical side of psychedelics and transformation, the one thing that, that I've learned through all of this is if you deal with your pain, if you deal with the, the stuff that's in you that's unresolved or your traumas or the stuff, your, your shadow side, that it really lifts the watermark on where you are in terms of where you're resonating energetically. And so what psychedelics have taught me is most of my life I've, I've been looking for peak experiences, mm. looking for adventure and looking for trail runs and looking for all kinds of cool experiences. But I, I usually return to the same watermark. Baseline, yeah. Yeah. And so what I found is, is when you go into the shadow side and you work with the stuff that's holding you back, and, and your beliefs that aren't serving you, mm. your baseline increases. Mm. And so I learned more by going through kind of catharsis than ecstasis, which got me thinking like, what, what could the future look like as entrepreneurs and, and leaders that are looking for transformation? Mm. Imagine you could go on a retreat and you could spend five days, two weeks, a month, three months, really working on yourself really shedding what's held you back, the kind of collateral damage from a hard season of years of being in the same business. What if you could work with professionals and healers to really prime you and get you ready for your next season? Imagine you could do that, and, and you know me, there's an obvious place that I want to do that, on the garden mm. route mm. in South Africa. What about if you could create a global destination if you could make south africa a global destination to come and do this work so as leaders we get primed for going back into the world that not only have we shed a lot of our baggage but we you kind of come out there with resonating the right kind of energy and beliefs that would make us would help us make much better decisions in our current or future businesses that we run and with that, like for me, I always ask myself, why, why do I feel so connected to entrepreneurs? Well, I always feel like working with leaders and they have influence over many circles. And so if you work with the influencer and if they have the shift, usually their hold will shift and will have, there'll be a positive impact in many, many times over. And so it's kind of shaping the influences for me have always been a big thing. So if there are people that are listening to the show. I, I really enjoyed hearing you talk about the technology components of it. And I'm sure that that'll be part of what you'll speak about in the conference uh, this afternoon. If there are people listening to the show that are deeply intrigued by what you shared, by this field, by understanding what the concerns or limitations or opportunities are, what is the starting point, Renan? I mean, because even if somebody's sitting here going, oh, I want one of those experiences, even that sounds, it's impossible to know where to begin um, on that journey. And I, and I guess that's not what you're encouraging people to do. There's a lot of exploration and reflection, I imagine, work that needs to be done before one jumps into a heavy dose hero experience. What is the path that somebody should take and what are some of the resources that they can tap into to uh, explore further. So there's some extraordinary resources out there. And the first thing you could do is just type in psychedelics and healing or research, and you'll, you'll get incredible results. But if you look at the main institutions that are doing it, like uh, John Hopkins, 
Imperial College, Harvard, all of that, they're really producing papers that are, are palatable for us normal humans to read. To consume, yeah. Yeah. One of the best books that I found was Michael Pollan's um, mm. How to Change Your Mind. And I think he did a huge service to humanity mm. because he put himself through many, many doses. And, and he's a prolific writer and a, a New York Times bestseller. And he spent time going through the research. So if you want a summary and if you want to know where things are going, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is, is a brilliant resource um, he also had a conversation with Sam Harris, I think, on a podcast, which is a, also a great primer if you're wanting to yeah, listen to people talk about. Yeah, so you read my mind. So Sam Harris, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, all of them have spent many hours on their podcast exploring this topic. Mm. And then soon, as things legalize, so, so in South Africa, we'll probably follow the states. And so it's important to know timing that in the mm. next two to three years, MDMA and psilocybin, magic mushrooms, will be legalized for therapeutic use. Mm. I mean, they've been designated as breakthrough substances. So mm. Mm. they're at the final hurdle. And so within the next two, three years, they will be legal. But right now, you know, if you want it, you can get it. Sure. The question is with who? And the question is, yeah. what is the process? And, and is it um, the right way to go about things? So... It's hard for me to give you advice in something that's not legal at the moment. Sure. But I've, I've certainly been um, having one-on-one -on -one consultations and kind of guiding people in the best approach and how to do it with the right people to get mm. the most desired positive mm. growth experience. Amazing. How can people where – where do they find you? How do they find the mystic, the Joburg mystic? So, and that's what I'm calling you from now. <laughs> Thank you. So you could find me, I guess, I, I prefer WhatsApp, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to give my email address because I'm so anti-email. Okay. So I'm sure you could provide that um, in the show notes and, sure. and afterwards. And then pretty soon I'll have my own site, ronenez.com. Uh, okay. And that's, that will probably in the next uh, couple of weeks or a couple of months will be available and then you can reach me through there. Great. But if you can't find me, ask Mike. Yeah, well, there's that too. I can always do the uh, broker the intro, my friend. It's it's always fascinating to speak to you. There's there's something about the way you tell your stories and and the way you share your experiences that's very peaceful, <laughs> um, and that's always been an experience uh, being close to you and and reflecting with you on our our journeys, some some overlapping pieces. But thank you for taking time today. I think it's it's wonderful to see you do the work you are most passionate about. And do the work that you believe will have the biggest impact on you know the communities and the and the and the individuals that you care so deeply about. So, thank you from all of us, and uh, we look forward to see what you'll create in the years to come. Awesome, thanks, Mike. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. 
You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.